The passage this morning is Genesis 24. Please read or listen along to the word of the Lord. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down beside, outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, 
come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me, but he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son, for my clan, and for my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. So I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I'm standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water to whom I shall say, Please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebecca came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your waters drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, who Milka bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, This thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men, and they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebecca and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahairoi and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. 
And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah his mother and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is the word of the Lord. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful young woman who lived under the tyrannical oppression of her stepmother and her two stepsisters. When an invitation for a ball at the castle arrived from a handsome prince, the young lady was coldly abandoned at home until her fairy godmother appears. Her fairy godmother magically clothes the girl in a splendid gown and and whisk her off to the ball along with a warning that at the stroke of midnight you better get yourself out of there because the magic's going away. Of course, the prince is transfixed by her beauty. He lifted up his eyes. She lifted up her eyes. which causes the girl to completely lose track of time. And so when the clock begins to strike 12, she panics and runs out of the palace, leaving behind one of her glass slippers. The prince, of course, is is devastated and immediately launches a search to find the maiden. Many women try in vain to fit their foot into the remaining slipper, including the two stepsisters. The stepmother suspects the identity of the real maiden. And so she breaks the glass slipper before Cinderella can try it on, but have no fear because at that moment, thanks to some help from a few mice, Cinderella produces the matching slipper, which fits perfectly. And she marries Prince Charming and they live happily ever after to make millions for Disney. (laughs) Had to say that. Cinderella is a familiar story, right? It's a, it's a beloved story. It's a fairy tale kind of story. And I think it's easy to hear a, a, a romantic story like we just did, Isaac and Rebecca, where, where everything seems to work out in the end. And we, we quickly put it in the same category, right? I, w- I was laughing with my wife when you get to the part You know, Isaac lifted up his eyes. (laughs) Rebecca lifted up her eyes. You can just feel the violins. Da-da-da! You know, boom! We put it in the same category, right? We, We immediately have several thoughts. At least I do. First, how sweet. Good for them. Second, I wish my life was like that. If, if only everything could work out just so, just like it always does in the fairy tales. Maybe the next time you're lonely and you're wanting a spouse, you should try watering some camels. <laughs> we can process it that way. I don't know if it struck you that way. 
But hear this, friend, the divinely intended effect of Genesis 24 is not to make you pine for life in a fairy tale. That's not God's goal. Genesis 24 isn't about hitting a stroke of good luck or the smile of Lady Fortune. It's about, more than anything else, the loving providence of a God who always keeps his promises. That's what it's about. And you won't find that word providence anywhere in the Bible. True story. But it's a biblical word and it, and it practically jumps off the pages, God's providence of Genesis 24. And when I, when I use the word providence, I don't want you to think cold sovereignty, some sort of God is utterly and completely in control of all things and it's just up there and it's a data point. No, providence, as one author says, is God's sovereignty for us. God's sovereignty toward you. And I don't think I can do any better in defining providence than the 10th Lord's Day of the Heidelberg Catechism. So listen with me. What do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance. Hear that, friend. But by, from, his fatherly hand. It's worth reciting together some Sunday soon, so look out. Question two. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? How does it help us? We can be patient when things go against us. We can be thankful when things go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. We're going to recite that soon too. <laughs> you won't find God speaking audibly anywhere in this chapter. It's kind of like the book of Ruth. But God's hand is all over every detail and decision of this story, friends. His hand's all over it, work, working all things together according to the counsel of his good and perfect will. If you want to think about this chapter, as I mentioned earlier, in essence, this is a case study for the providence of God. It's a case study for that. And, and the big idea is simply this. More than anything else, Genesis 24 teaches us that the providence of God guarantees the provision of God. It guarantees the provision of God for 
all those who are willing to follow him by faith. The providence of God guarantees the provision of God for all those who are willing to follow him by faith. I linger there because every word I just said is really, really important. Really important, okay? God makes some staggering promises to us in his word. That's, that's not an exaggeration. Staggering promises. Promises to do good to us. Promises to provide for us. Prom- promises to give us all that is needful to experience not just fullness of joy, but his joy. Which raises this question, what guarantees those promises? On what basis do I know that that's not just a statement of, hey, I hope the Eagles win today. But it's a, but it's a guarantee. How do I know that? How can I be assured of that? Part of the answer, friend, what's the guarantee behind God's promises is God's providence. The doctrine of providence, his proven power to work all things together for good for those who are willing to follow him by faith. It's the doctrine of providence. That's the focus of this chapter. And I think there are several, what I will call, soul-strengthening glimpses of providence in here. You could do a whole series on this chapter. There's enough content by far. But I just want to draw your attention to a couple glimpses of God's providence, his sovereign control over all things, working them together for our good and his glory. So here's the first glimpse, verses 1 to 9. We see God's providence in the promises he makes. The promises he makes. So the chapter opens and we're immediately confronted with a dilemma. What's the dilemma? Abraham's son, Isaac, needs a wife. Needs a wife. Why? Well, it's kind of God's dilemma because the Lord had promised to make Abraham's offspring, what? As numerous as the stars of heaven. As many as the grains on the seashore. So the miraculous birth of his one son, Isaac, by Sarah, is a start. But it's, a, it's, it's kind of a one-generation start. You, you know what's required if Isaac is going to turn into a multitude of offspring? A girl. <laughs> it's not rocket science. He needs a wife. He needs a wife. So what did, God, what did Abraham do given the need? Did he sit passively on the sidelines and say, you know what? I'm just going to give it all to God and we'll let God take care of it. No, he did not. What did he do? What did he do? He believed that the Lord would provide and then he expressed his trust in God by summoning his household steward and saying, hey, household steward, I trust you. Go find a wife for my son Isaac. He believed God, but he expressed his trust by acting. He sent him on a mission. And this mission came with two requirements. Requirement one, servant, don't take a wife for Isaac from the Canaanites. Now, we're not told explicitly why not. But it doesn't take a genius to 
to take a good guess, okay? Because we can surmise from the description of the wickedness of the Canaanites in all the previous chapters that Abraham was very concerned that if his servant took a wife for Isaac from the Canaanites, that woman would lead his son well far away from following the Lord. So that's the first instruction. Don't do that, okay? Here's the second requirement. Besides find a wife for my son from my own people in Mesopotamia, second requirement, don't take Isaac back to Mesopotamia. Don't find a wife for Isaac among the Canaanites, servant, and don't take Isaac back to Mesopotamia. Why? Well, because the servant raises this plausible problem in verse five. Look there with me. Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land, to Canaan. Must I then take your son, Isaac, back to the land from which you came? What's Abraham say? Verse six. See to it that you do not take my son back there. Why would he say that? Well, I think his response, friends, is governed by three things, okay? First, Abraham is governed by the authority of what God has done done in the past. What's he say? The Lord took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred. Translation, God called us out of Mesopotamia. He brought us here to Canaan because that was God's doing. We are not going back. He saw what God had done. Second, he's governed by the authority of what God has said. The Lord, what did the Lord do? He spoke to me and swore to me To your offspring, Abraham, I will give this land, not the land of Mesopotamia, Abraham, this land, the land of Canaan. So what do you have? You you have the pattern of God's work and the precedent of God's word functioning like guardrails in Abraham's life that are keeping him on the path of obedience to God. The pattern of God's work, the precedent of God's work. But there's a third reality that I think also governs his response. And this really is the focus here. Look at at the end of verse seven. How does verse seven end? The Lord, the God of heaven, in answer to the servant's question, concern, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Okay, in other words, Abraham perceives something. He perceives that in the final analysis, the fulfillment of God's promises does not depend on the whims and desires of man. He perceives that. He knows it's guaranteed by the providence, sovereign control of Almighty God. In other words, the God who said to me, to your offspring, I will give this land has every bit of power necessary to bring a wife for my son to this land while Isaac obeys the Lord by remaining in this land. That's what he believes. And in confessing that kind of faith, in the providence of God, Abraham reminds us of something, church. Namely, that when God makes a promise, it is never a mere statement of desire. It is a declaration of what will surely come to pass. You and I make all kinds of promises. 
I doubt many of us would want every promise we have not kept to be putting up on that screen. When God makes a promise, he never hits an obstacle outside of him or inside of him that has ever or will ever keep him from making good on that promise. Why? Because unlike you and me, He's a God who exercises absolute providence over all things. Absolute sovereign control over all things. God's not like us. He doesn't make commitments and get stopped by forces outside of his control. He's completely in control because he's God. Isaiah 46, 9, I am God and there's no other. I'm God. Hear that. And there's none like me. What's it mean to be God? It means I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. That's what it means to be God. I have purposed and I will do it. Few doctrines, friends, are more comforting than the providence of God. In a world that just feels out of control, when your life feels out of control, Abraham believed God's promises. He believed that God had all the power necessary to do what he said he would do. And yet at the same time, notice this, Abraham, even in exercising that faith, he was very careful to avoid what I'll call the trap of presumption. So look at verse eight. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. Now, when I read that, I was confused because I thought, all right, oh, Hebrews 11, man of faith, Abraham, which one is it? Is it that God will be faithful to cause the woman to come back or the woman will refuse to come back? It sounds like you're talking out of Two sides of your mouth. So which one is it? What, what gives? Is, is he kind of this, I have some faith. I got some unbelief, faith and unbelief. Why not just set an example for the ages and, and, and not bother with this? But if she won't come back, business. how dare you doubt God? That makes this sermon harder. Can you just stick with verse seven? <laughs> what do you have to go being all realistic and saying things that we feel? Well, I think what's going on here is that Abraham remembers what God has already done for him and said to him, right? And on that basis, what God has done for him, what God has said to him, what God has done for him, what God has said for him, he knows that no matter what happens, Isaac must stay in Canaan. The land God promised to give him. He, he, has, he also has, besides that, an abiding confidence in the providence of God. And on that basis, he believes God will move on the heart of a young woman to leave her country and kindred and follow his servant back to the land of Canaan. But listen very carefully. But he doesn't cling to that particular outcome. The girl's coming back with the same certainty that he clings to the word of God. Please, please pay attention, church. He believes she'll come back, but he acknowledges she might not. Why? Because after all, God hadn't said 
exactly how he would provide a wife for Isaac. And Abraham is being ever so careful to not assign his subjective faith more authority than God's objective word. Notice that. He acts with absolute confidence in God's promises, right? That's clear. He acts with absolute confidence in God's providence. That's clear. But in his acting, he doesn't assume that he knows exactly how God will do what he said he will do. He knows that no matter what happens and no matter how God provides, that two things are true. God will provide and God's word has to be obeyed. God will provide and God's word has to be obeyed. In other words, verse eight, it's not the intrusion of unbelief, it's the presence of humility. So, whenever we walk by faith, rightly believing that God's providence guarantees God's provision, that's the whole point, right? We need to be very careful to never justify disobeying God with the guise of trusting God. I'm not disobeying God, pastor. I'm trusting God. Well, this begs for an example. So, here you go. Given this is all about God providing a spouse, think about this. Say you meet a potential mate who is perfect in every way, except they're not a Christian. Should you pray, God will save them? It's not a setup. Go and make disciples of all nations. Okay, okay. yes, <laughs> absolutely. Okay, might God give you a gift of faith to believe that he will providentially save them? Absolutely. Should you move forward in the relationship before they're saved? Absolutely not. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 6 clearly forbids Christians from marrying non-Christians. So, don't say, I know it's wrong, but I also know that even if I do it, God will work out everything in the end. So I'm going to do it. Don't do that, okay? God's providence isn't a license for disobedience, friends. It is fuel for obedience. It's fuel for obedience. Why? Because it frees us to walk in humble submission to God's word, confident that nothing is too hard for the Lord and that God isn't sitting there saying, oh, if only this person would respond to me and believe I could give him as a bride to you, but you're not, and so I'm stuck, and because you're not, you're gonna be single. Oh, my No, no, Psalm 84, 11, no good thing. No good thing. Does the sovereign God of the universe withhold from those who walk uprightly? O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Why is that blessed not a the one who trusts in you has a decent chance of succeeding. Why is it certain? Because of the doctrine of God's providence. 
the right response to the promises of God, upheld by the providence of God, is humble obedience. Okay, it's the first, first way we glimpse God's providence and the promises he makes. Here's the second, okay? We're gonna look at verses 10 to 28 here. We see God's providence in the guidance he gives. The promises he makes, the guidance he gives. All right, what's, what's happening here in verse 10? Well, after swearing to abide by the two requirements, okay, the servant takes 10 cam- camels, which were, by the way, pretty sick luxury vehicles at that point in time. In case you didn't know that and you were laughing, that was, that was like driving 10 really nice cars. Remember the Escalade I mocked the other week? Yeah, think that, all right? So what happens next in verse 12, look there, is remarkable. What's the servant say? Oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the springs of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for our servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Why on earth would he pick that as the test? Well, it's because watering 10 camels, when a thirsty camel can drink up to 25 gallons of water, is not a joke. The test was designed to reveal, is this woman unselfish, hospitable, and generous? By the way, that's exactly what you should be looking for in a wife, guys. And ladies, that's exactly the kind of woman you should be. Now, before I go any further, here we go. Let's issue an important caution, okay? Please hear this. What Abraham's servant does here in Genesis 24, no less than what Gideon does in Judges chapter 6, is not designed to give you a recipe for discerning God's secret will. Okay? It's not like some people use scripture, some people use godly counsel, real Christians use camels. That's not the point, okay? There are general principles for us here to learn from that are rooted in the providence of God. That's the big idea. But what God actually does here is very unusual. It's not normal, okay? So single guys, don't bring in a camel next Sunday. As a general rule, if you want to discern God's will, if you want to make wise decisions, God's going to use several things, his word, his spirit, and godly counsel. I'm not going to preach that sermon right now. Why not? Because Matthew Giannini is going to preach that sermon and many more in the Sunday school class Josh talked about. So if you're thinking, oh, I was looking for help to discern God's will, go to the Sunday school class. Two weeks, be there. That's the caution. Now, if the servant's prayer is not a biblical precedent for making God show his card, so to speak. 
You know, like on World Series of Poker, they kind of flip them up and the camera sees the cards, right? If, if that's not what's going on, what is it? What's the point? What's the divinely intended effect? Why? I think, church, it's a compelling example of absolute dependence on God for the decisions we make. Absolute dependence on God, okay? Notice first the basis of his dependence. What's the basis? Well, when the servant addresses the Lord as, quote, God of my master Abraham, he's not implying that the Lord is Abraham's God, but not his God. What's he doing? He's appealing to God on the basis of God's covenant faithfulness. That's what he's doing. He's basically saying, God, you chose to reveal yourself to Abraham. You pledged your steadfast love to Abraham. God, you swore on penalty of your own life, death, to be faithful to this guy to give him offspring. So God, I'm praying to you on the basis of your steadfast love, honor your word. Do what you said you will do. Keep your promise. Bless Abraham by giving me success. So so his choice to depend on God, what's the basis of his dependence? It's God's promise to be good to him. Do you realize that if you were a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ and therefore are found in Christ, that you have an exceedingly greater basis on which to depend on Almighty God. Exceedingly greater. Why do I say that? Because you're not working with God's covenant to Abraham. You know what you're working with? You're working with God's covenant to Jesus Christ. God was faithful to his covenant with Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you offspring. How much more will God not be faithful to his own son and all who are found in him? If you're in Christ, you're his child. And that means we cry out on the basis of our status as God's beloved children to whom the father is promised in James 1 verse 5. If any of you, my children, lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Ask God. Ask him who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But the basis is similar, even though ours is stronger. It's the the steadfast love of the Lord, okay? Second, notice the nature of his dependence. We've got the basis. What's the nature? What's the servant asking God to do? Well, if you look at verse 12, his basic request is, please grant me success, which if you, you could translate that literally, make it happen before me. Make it happen before me. Well, what's he doing? He's placing all his hope, all his confidence, all his trust for a favorable outcome, not in his smarts and wisdom, but in the power of God. That's what he's doing. He's saying, Lord, if this is gonna go well, it's because you are going to sovereignly orchestrate all the details of the situation and work it together for good. So God, Make it happen before me. Make it happen. Work and move in all the specific details, all the specific circumstances to reveal your provision. That's a provoking example. Why? Because rightly understood, the providence of God, it it never makes us passive. Okay? It makes us prayerful. It makes us dependent. It it compels us to demonstrate our dependence on God by being faithful to pray. What what are we doing when we're praying? Do you realize we are not alerting God to a new need he forgot about since yesterday? Have you ever stopped thinking about that? Sometimes when we pray and we say, Lord, as your word says so and so, I'm just sitting there thinking like, as if he forgot that. (laughs) 
So what are we doing when we pray? We are expressing absolute dependence on God. We're saying, Lord, just like this man, would you sovereignly, providentially work all the details, all the specifics, at the last bit of what I say, what she says, all of that to make your provision clear for my good and your glory. Okay, that's the nature of dependence, that it's, it's expressed in prayer. Finally, notice the outcome of this dependence. Verse 15. Before he had even finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. You know what my favorite part of that verse is? It's not the genealogy stuff, but that's significant. We'll get to that. Before he had even finished speaking. Why do I love that? Because it doesn't show a God who's kind of, next, what's your request? Take the ticket, go to department four. No. It's not like the boss in The Incredibles. What's going on here? God is expressing that he is eager to hear prayer. That he's actively listening. That, that he is his would-be friend. He's leaning forward, waiting for you to speak, already knowing what you're about to say. He's that excited to be faithful to you. And the way God answers this prayer of dependence is just amazing because he does abundantly more than all the servant could have asked or imagined. So it's not just one of Abraham's distant relatives that comes down. Who is it? It's the granddaughter of his brother, Nahor. Okay, that's amazing. It's not just someone from your country and your kindred out there somewhere because they had really big families in those days. It's Rebecca. And she's beautiful. <laughs> Guys, notice how God doesn't say that's ungodly. All right, there are times, quick side note, when someone comes to me as a pastor and says, hey, I'm thinking about pursuing a relationship with this girl and, and I just listen, 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 and then at some point I just step back and say, hey, can we get something straight? Do you like her? <laughs> Is she beautiful in your eyes? Why? Because that's a gift from God. It's a gift from God, ladies. Your beauty is a gift from the Lord. So she's beautiful She's Rebecca, and she's single. And you can just feel the tension here. She gives the servant a drink of water when he asks. Pause. <laughs> and then she spontaneously says, and could I water your candles also? One thing after another. And so... The servant says, that looks like an open door to me. And because all we need is an open door, I'm going to charge through it. Have some jewelry. <laughs> no. He doesn't buy into open door equals will of God. Nonsense. That's nonsense. It may be the will of God. But do not come to me and say, because I could do it, it has to be the will of God. That's arrogance. Enough said. 
He doesn't buy into that. He doesn't assume that just because something seems incredibly good or it seems like a supernatural answer to prayer, that it must be. What does he do? Look at verse 21. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. So what's going on here? What's going on? He's praying to God to guide him through the circumstances of the situation. Okay? That's really good. That's that dependence on the Lord. Guidance he gives. But the man never shifts his trust for guidance from the Lord to his circumstances. Do you follow that? I'm going to say that again. He's praying to God, asking him, Lord Jesus, exercise your providence. Guide me, provide for me through all the specific details of my circumstances right now. But he never says that because these are the circumstances... I can therefore independently know the will of God. He doesn't shift his dependence for guidance from the Lord to his circumstances, even while he's asking the Lord to work and provide through his circumstances. That's so important. He kept waiting on the Lord. He kept listening. And eventually he does shower her with gifts because he learns what the narrator already told us back in verse 15, that Rebecca is the granddaughter of Abraham's brother and that God had done exactly what he prayed for God to do. And his response, look at verse 26, is provoking. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. The guy was undone because he realized that the Lord of the universe had providentially arranged all the details of the situation to do for Abraham and Isaac exactly what he promised he would do. It wasn't a coincidence. It wasn't good luck. It was the providence of God. But the servant exercised wisdom and discretion, right? He set up a pretty good test, but he recognized it in hindsight, kind of like Monday morning quarterbacking. In hindsight, he recognized, oh my, oh my. Lord, that was you guiding me, leading me, protecting me, caring for me every step of that way. His dependence on God to guide him resulted in praise to the Lord because he realized that the God who controls all things had just moved in his life. And friends, I want to remind you this morning that that we serve the exact same God today. He doesn't exercise a general control over your circumstances. He's in control of the details, of the particulars. And and if you're a Christian, then you can depend on the God who controls all things to work them all together for your good and his glory until the day he brings you home. So I exhort you from Proverbs 3, verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. What's the second point? That the providence of God is revealed in the guidance he gives. And the only appropriate response is prayerful dependence. Here's the last glimpse of God's providence. The promises he makes, the guidance he gives, point three, the blessing he protects. 
blessing he protects. So, review, Rebecca is quite the catch. (laughs) The perfect gift. Exactly what he prayed for, exactly what Isaac needs. And so the big question in the second half of Genesis 24 is really this. Is she going to come back with the God? Will she return? Remember his question to Abraham back in verse 5. What if she doesn't come back? I wonder if you can relate lest we distance ourselves too far from this, how many times do we anxiously wait for God to provide? And then the moment he does provide, we anxiously worry that we're going to lose the provision. Tracking with me? We, we, we go, Psalm 84 says that we're supposed to go from strength to strength. You know what we often go, go to? From anxiety to anxiety. <laughs> it's not God's design, but we do it, right? Lord, thanks for the job. But what if the boss decides the black man needs to go? Lord, thanks for the car. But what if someone totals it? Lord, thanks for the husband you gave my daughter. But what if he leaves her for another woman? Lord, thank you for my church family. But what if the sin of man brings this whole thing crashing to the ground? What what do all those situations have in common? What's the common thread? Lord, will the destructive desires and deeds of men stop you from blessing me or snatch away your provision, your blessing, right after I receive it? You with me? I'm I'm so grateful in the face of that fear, that anxiety, friends. So grateful that the providence of God doesn't just stop with identifying God's blessing or pouring out God's blessing. You know what it also does? It protects God's blessing. It protects his blessing. It safeguards it. It protects the blessings we've received from those who would seek to manipulate or harm. Now that doesn't always look like what we'd like it to look, right? But the point of this whole second half is that when God has a blessing that God in his infinite wisdom knows is absolutely perfect for you. No man is going to stop that. No man's going to get in the way of that. No wicked desire or scheme of man, as we sing in the last verse of In Christ Alone, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Where do we see this? Look at verse 30. Laban's introduction in this verse highlights hints at his underlying greed. Okay? A greed that's, that's really going to rear its head a couple chapters later when we get to Jacob. Okay, Laban is a deceiver. He's greedy. In verse 30, as soon as Laban saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, he went to the man. Fill in the blank. Okay, so, so what's Abraham's servant do? He gives him a recounting of the situation. Here's what I've asked. Here, here's how God's provided. And, and he, he concludes by pointing to the sovereign hand of God in this whole thing. And then he says, verse 29, to Laban, Laban, now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And it's very interesting, Laban doesn't say, oh my word, God's been so good to you. Crazy. Well, servant, um, I can say neither bad nor good. Only it appears to be the will of God. So take Rebecca and 
go. It seems the Lord has spoken here. It's a done deal. She's yours. Not so fast. (laughs) Because in the morning, there's a change of heart. Or rather, I would argue, he finally shows his true colors. Mom gets involved, verse 55. Check this out. Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days, and after that, she may go. Now again, when we get to Laban again in a few chapters, he does the same thing to Jacob. What's he doing? He's toying with the servant. He's playing him. He's stalling. They, he, they agreed to the marriage the night before. That was, in that culture at that time, Laban's decision to make. So for him to now even ask, well, how about we bring Rebecca in and let's see what she wants to say. That is unscrupulous at best. That's unethical at best. And so just when it seems like everything's going to work out, the family throws a wrench in the whole program. And you can just feel the tension. Look at verse 58. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? Pretend you don't know the next verse. And you're the servant. Everything good that it seemed like God was bringing to pass is on the line. And it's a teenage girl who says yes or no. You ever been in a situation where it feels like the one voice of one person and their desires And whatever comes out of their mouth right now is in complete control of everything good in my life. Will she say yes? Or will she say no? Friends, our lives are filled with moments where it feels like the good program of God's blessing completely depends on the whims and desires of man. You know what Rebecca's simple, I will go, screams at you and me? Man is not in control. That I will go screams God is in control. The will of man never has been, it never is, it never will be. Why not? Because the providence of God prevails. Not just once or in fairy tales, but in in your life and my life over and over and over again. So hear this, Christian. God has not subjected his program of blessing to the determinative will and schemes and desires and awareness and maturity and wisdom and sin of men. His program to bless you is subject to no other authority than almighty God and his good and gracious and loving providence. There there will be in the kingdom of God no usurping of God's throne whereby a wicked man, even as we heard that prophetic word earlier today, kind of squeezes between God and his blessing on your life. Where God's blessing you and a man comes in there and says, you know what, Uh, no, no thank you, and wrenches that away from you. Now, when humans hurt us and destroy us, I mean, what if Rebecca had said, I will stay? 
would hurt. What do we do in those moments? We refuse to lose sight of the big principle, the, the, the governing reality. What's that? That it is the purposes of Almighty God that always prevail. What's our proof for that? What's our proof that the exceeding wickedness of man can never threaten the program of God to bless? Yes. Yes. What did Peter say when he was preaching in Acts? You did what God prepared, what God planned beforehand would happen. The height of human wickedness, friends. The crucifixion of the Son of God. You can't get any higher than that. That is the apex of the glory of the providence of Almighty God. That's crazy. And that's not a fairy tale. So we rejoiced with King Solomon in Proverbs 16.1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. It's from the Lord. There's not a single blessing that God wants to give you that can be delayed, stopped, or stolen by the wickedness of man. Because he's not just a God who shows his providence in the promises he makes or in the guidance he gives, but he also shows his providence in the blessing he protects. And the right response to that protection is trust. Because Paul got it right in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? The answer, by the way, that echoes off off every page of scripture is two words. No one. No one. If you're in Christ, God is for you. And you know what that means? No one could be against you. No one can stop God from fulfilling his good plan to bless you. When it makes sense and even when it doesn't. I'll conclude with this. When Isaac finally gets his wife and their eyes meet, it feels like one of those moments where everyone should just live happily ever after. Okay, spoiler alert, they don't. They don't. Things get hard, really, really hard, especially with the kids. But what the story behind their marriage, what this almost fairy tale like account that's true, drives in this, the, the foundation of their lives at the very beginning of their relationship is that it's the providence of God that prevails. The providence of God will prevail. His, his voice might not be audible. The, the whims and desires of men may loom large, but come what may, the providence of God will prevail. And it's because God's providence prevails that we know God's provision is guaranteed for those who follow him by faith. It's the providence of God that guarantees the provision of God. So church, may Genesis 24 make you, make us a people who humbly obey, who prayerfully depend, and who always trust. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask now that you would take our hearts that are prone to doubt and confusion and fear. As I asked earlier this morning, 
your good providence would replace doubt with faith, confusion with wisdom and guidance, and fear with trust. Father, do that as we sing, expressing our trust in you. Do that as we fix our eyes on you, Jesus, through the Lord's Supper. Amen. Let's stand and sing.